0: Україна переможе на фронті. Україна переможе у відбудові, Україна переможе у поверненні справедливости. Жодного сліду Росії на нашій землі не залишимо і жодного ворога не покараним також не залишимо.
1: As Vladimir Putin's war of aggression against Ukraine enters its 14th month, and with Russia's forces failing in their efforts to take more territory in the Donbas, Ukrainian forces are gearing up for a spring offensive. Ukrainian war planners are hoping that Russia's recent heavy losses in Bakhmut and in Vuhledar will pave the way for Ukraine to liberate more of its territory in the east and south. But Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has made it clear that a spring offensive will not be possible without more weapons and artillery from the west. We are on the eve of a potentially decisive phase of this war, so what happens next? Where does the war go from here? And what does the West need to do to help Ukraine win? Well, stick around because I've got just the guests to help us unpack it all and make us all a whole lot smarter. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location somewhere in sunny Southern Florida is somebody I have wanted to get on the podcast for a very long time. Retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinman is a 21-year veteran of the United States Armed Forces who served as Director for European Affairs for the U.S. National Security Council from 2018 to 2020. These days, Alexander is the director of the Institute for Informed American Leadership at the Vet Voice Foundation. Alexander is also the author of the must-read book *Here, Right Matters: An American Story*. Alex, thank you for your service and welcome to the virtual.
0: Thanks, Brian. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm uh, definitely aware and been uh, listening to the Power Vertical for some time. Uh, we've corrected the oversight of not of seeing each other here before. Yeah, no.
1: Well, uh, we 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 hope to have you on more frequently in in, in the in the future. So, so Alex, I know you got a lot to say about the speed or lack thereof that Western weapons are getting to Ukraine and the need for a more efficient system of maintaining those weapons. So I've set aside the entire second half of the program to do a deep dive into those aspects. But since we're on the eve of this spring offensive, I, I kind of wanted to, to get us started. I wanted to hand the mic over to you to assess where the war is at this point on the eve of Ukraine's much much anticipated spring offensive. What can we expect? What are the potential directions of the, of the upcoming offensive? I've heard different things, including a drive toward Melitopol to split Russian forces in the southeast what is the lay of the land as you see it right now Alex
0: sure so uh, I think that we are seeing a Russian uh, winter offensive uh, peter out mm-hmm. uh, I think the Russians still have some capability uh, analysts that kind of watch watch the the tactical situation more closely than I do assess they have some reserves but frankly they don't have a huge amount of ca- combat capability uh, for offensive operations um, That. That is dwindling. Uh, I think that the most analysts are now thinking that the Russians are weeks away from culminating uh, or maybe even have culminated, which means that they will switch to the defensive operations and uh, the Ukrainians will basically seize the initiative and be able to pick and choose Mm -hmm. where to conduct uh, um, their own counteroffensives. I think the most likely scenario and uh, the Ukrainians may have some other ideas uh, based on their uh, their detailed analysis and. Combined planning with the U.S. forces that there might be vulnerabilities to exploit in various other uh, in in various portions of the front line. But the most strategically important, the most strategically important uh, component of the front line is really the southern access that's oriented on uh, Melitopol and Mariupol. Mm -hmm. Melitopol primarily because it's a um, ground uh, transportation hub, so uh, road and uh, rail networks. And uh, Mariupol, because frankly, if the Ukrainians are able to to get that far, uh, or Burdansk for that matter, but more more than likely Mari- uh, Mariupol, uh, they would then have bisected the Russians' um, land bridge from Russia proper to Crimea. And fundamentally, I think that would probably be a tipping point. The Russians would would the Ukrainians would have uh, achieved a strategic objective, and maybe even broken the back of the uh, the Russian armed forces in Ukraine. Uh, We're seeing what looks like the outlines of a potential successful Ukrainian counteroffensive with success kind of balanced on a razor's edge. In my view, we really haven't quite sufficiently resourced the the Ukrainians to conduct operations. And we'll get into some more of the details here. But what I'm concerned about is that uh, the Ukrainians aren't able to achieve operational or strategic gains and then what we end up having is uh, Ukraine—correction, uh, Ru- Vladimir Putin with a reprieve, and then potentially another campaign cycle. We saw a campaign cycle last year in the first year, Russian offensive, Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, resulting in liberation of Kharkiv and Kherson. And then we're seeing another campaign cycle play out with the, the Russians conducting a an offensive on the back of a—of a—, um, of a Call up a conscription of some 300,000 uh, uh, troops. Uh, that's petering out. The Ukrainians will will counter conduct a counteroffensive. If the Ukrainians are not successful, we could see another nine-month-long campaign cycle go into next year, and that's what concerns me. That you know we're we we are forced to go into a third year of war with the uh, associated risks.
1: So, you, I mean, if, I, if I'm hearing you correct, correct, correctly, Alex, if you agree with the others I've been talking to that say the most likely trajectory is towards Melitopol, Mediupol, to basically split the Russian forces in the South and cut off, bifurcate that land bridge. Um, so that's what we should be watching for. And if Ukraine is successful in that, then we might be in for a shorter war. If not, it we could see
0: the cycle repeat itself. Did I, did, did I understand you correctly there? That's right. So I think, uh, you know, People, uh, analysts that look at the map kind of understand that there could be gains that the Ukrainians make in Luhansk, maybe even Donetsk. Uh, It's possible that the Ukrainians may choose to conduct uh, operations in that that direction if they assess that's where the greatest vulnerabilities are, and then use successes in the East to potentially exploit uh, vulnerabilities That emerge in the south, meaning that the Russians have to scramble. Russians have to conduct some sort of kind of um, movement of reserves, uh, have to reposition forces to um, to manage the Ukrainian counteroffensive. But that's not a strategic uh, objective. The strategic objective would be bisecting the land bridge, going to get into Melitopol and Mariupol. Those would be far more significant. I think, in fact, if the Ukrainians were successful there, were able able to hold uh, the flanks on this particular thrust to the south, you could see what amounts to mop-up operations in the rest of Kherson. So that would be the southwest, and then you know the the Ukrainians would have a more, let's say, um, deliberate kind of long-term approach to liberate ter- territory occupied uh, since around 2014 in Luhansk and Donetsk. But the most important thing, again, is Melitopol and Mariupol. Right.
1: right. And uh, and that that scans with what others have been telling me. General Ben Hodges was on the program a couple of a couple of weeks back. Retired Gen, uh, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges was saying basically similar to what you're saying now. Before I move on and talk about what happens after that, I wanted to talk a little bit about M- Bakhmut, because the whole Bakhmut situation has Uh, Kind of uh, puzzled me a little bit It is not of great strategic importance It's not a rail hub But yet both sides have turned it into this symbolic um, This symbolic battle Why is that the case in your view?
0: Yeah So I think uh, we potentially see You know, the first indications of a significant Politicization of military operations uh, And uh, political uh, uh, Urgencies Trumping kind of military Um decision making around the, the this topic of Bakhmut. Uh, I think there's consensus again that Bakhmut isn't strategically important from a military standpoint, but it's become it's assumed a uh, strategic importance from a political standpoint. And frankly, you know, uh, according to Klauswitz um, you know basically uh, it it's politics by other means, right? So right. I think the bottom line is that we're we're seeing seeing is Bakhmut taking outside uh, importance, mainly because the, the credibility of uh, the Zelensky administration to a certain extent in the management of this war is um, being put at stake to break the backs of the Russian armed forces there, drain Russian uh, combat power, force them to culminate sooner. My concern is, is that um, not necessarily that the Ukrainians hold the city, or that they inflict damage on the Ukraine on the Russian military. My concern is that they are sapping potentially their combat power, that they would mm-hmm. a far more uh, important counteroffensive. So, even if the um, the statistics around uh, seven to one casualties inflicted on Russian forces by Ukrainian forces, or five to one, or I've heard convergence down to you know three and a half to four to one, holds that that is less important. Um, because that only kind of gets you, based on the size of the, the Russian Federation, based on the, on the size of the Russian military, you know that that's they need to inflict several times more than that in order to really kind of attrit the Russian forces in a significant way. In the meantime, they're losing co- uh, um, important combat power that they would need to conduct these offensives, counteroffensives that we've been discussing towards um, Melitopol and Mariupol. That's really the significance. So we will see probably in the coming, you know, three, four months, whether this decision to fight for Bakhmut holds. In part, uh, there could be a huge amount of criticism on uh, this Bakhmut operation and putting so much uh, force into holding Bakhmut uh, if the Ukrainian counteroffensive peters out. If they're successful, then, of course, it will validate the the decision by Zelensky to hold on to that city and, um, you know, drain the Russians of, of strength. So it's it's
1: it's really impossible to say at this point whether Zelensky's strategy of turning Bakhmut into this symbolic stand was and then to to, to drain Russian to uh, to drain Russian forces there it, whether or not that was a mistake we just don't know yet because we have to see how the how the spring offensive plays out.
0: I, I think that's generally right. Uh, I could tell you that um, it seems to me that the the tactic that was very successful for the Ukrainians uh, was to s- trade space for time. Um, you know, forced the Russians to attack very fortified positions. They did that. They fought hard for Luchansk uh, uh, and Severodonetsk, withdrew the Russians quickly thereafter, culminated. They didn't have to make a fight out of Akhmut. They didn't have to take that kind of casualties. So, from a purely kind of human toll perspective, from the perspective of, uh, you know, the amount of casualties the Ukrainians are taking, it's, it's ill conceived. But, mm-hmm the decision could still be validated by a successful counteroffensive, or it could turn out to be a pretty, pretty significant disaster uh, that um, the Ukrainians chose to fight over this ground that in a lot of ways was meaningless. So I think it's not a good call. It actually seems to, to fall back into a historical kind of almost Soviet type of mindset of um, you know just duking it out with your, your, with your enemy. And um, that's that's kind of disturbing to me hearing that in the background that that's that's OK. We, we allow dogs on the Power Vertical okay.
1: podcast. In fact, we I, welcome I, them. <laughs> I mean, the other two could join in here in a second. Um, looking looking forward now, and let's assume this spring offensive meets with some success. Um, let's assume the drive to- towards Melitopol and, and Mariupol is successful. Let's assume Ukraine is able to bifurcate Russia's forces to to to, to, to divide up that land bridge to Crimea. What happens next? Because I had I, again, I had General Ben Hodges on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, arguing that the next move should be toward Crimea. Um, in General Hodges' view, how do you where where does this go next if Ukraine is successful in this spring offensive?
0: Sure. So I wrote an article about this uh, back in, I think, January or, or February uh, about the potential for a Crimea offensive. I, I think it's probably the last thing they do. Uh-huh. They p- potentially apply fires, definitely destroy the Kerch Bridge, make life miserable, uh, go after you know strategic targets like uh, airfields, uh, concentration of logistics and things of that nature, and just kind of pound away that Crimea for for weeks, for months, uh, making it kind of un- un- untenable. A Black Sea Fleet, punish the Black Sea Fleet, make it very, very difficult for the, the um, Russians to kind of be able to sustain operations. In much the same way that they did with regards to Kherson, uh, the you know, the Russians weren't kind of forced out, they were forced to withdraw, based on how difficult it was to try to um, operate from the north side of the Dnieper River. I think uh, you'd probably want to uh, withhold um, conducting a major offensive on Crimea and instead focus on liberating your territory, the rest of Kherson, uh, potentially uh, Lugansk and Donetsk, uh, and accumulate things that are very, very kind of challenging for a uh, uh, low density in the uh, Ukrainian armed forces. They do not have a any amphibious capability to speak of. There are really only two kind of land uh, uh corridors one of them is a bridge another one's actually a land corridor for the the, the uh, ukrainians to operate from the russians know exactly where they're coming from um you know it's it's a very very difficult operation uh, there's a potential for like deep in the summer that uh some of the marshes dry out the ukrainians might have a larger kind of land corridor to operate from so that that could timing might work out uh, mm-hmm. i i i I would say that uh, it has to be a very, very careful uh, terrain analysis, what happens if it's a particularly wet season and uh, they don't have those those, um, dry out. So that kind of ends the possibility of doing an offensive. And I think it's dangerous because uh, that's probably the one place where uh, Putin is particularly sensitive about being able to hang on to Crimea, uh, claim the fact that he kind of brought crimea back into the into the russian fold uh to next territory since 2014 and that's probably the one point where you know the saber rattling around nuclear employment becomes significant uh Mm -hmm. even though i'm very confident that he wouldn't go in that direction he'd be materializing a uh regime ending crisis by Mm -hmm. escalating to nuclear uh which for him the whole purpose of a lot of these enterprises is to a, uh, preserve enhance the the regime, uh, so he wouldn't he wouldn't necessarily go down that route, but that's probably the one area where it also makes military sense. The concentration of military forces on the north side or on bridgeheads on the south side potentially makes a particularly uh, a ripe target for kind of p- very powerful weapons uh, if, if you could deliver them um, again, no guarantees right there's that, that is a, a topic that people don't really uh, think about you know delivering a nuclear payload, to, to uh, anywhere in Ukraine is not an easy task. Uh, just ask the, the folks that fire drones and cruise missiles how successful they are. You know, th- uh, 30% of the time, uh, they might get through to targets. So that's, that's not an easy thing to do, but um, that's, that's a dangerous spot. So what I guess um, I would suggest is that we would see a, uh, a point in this war where Ukraine has, made, has achieved these strategic objectives, broken the land bridge, broken the ability to resupply the, uh, the uh, uh, Crimean Peninsula through the Kerch Bridge, and applied massive pressure to then force Putin to negotiate in earnest. And that doesn't mean the end of the war, but potentially by the end of the year, we could be in a situation where Putin needs to hang on to what he has, potentially uh, Lugansk and Donetsk in 2014, um, certainly Crimea. And that's when he starts to, you know, both do some severe saber rattling and really negotiate in earnest. Um, that's that's a, a legitimate scenario, I think. Uh, that,
1: do, do you see that happening? I mean, given the rhetoric coming out of Zelensky that Ukraine will not negotiate until all Russian troops are out of you know, out of Ukrainian territory, including Crimea. Is that just
0: rhetoric or or how do how do you see that? It I'd say that there there it's more rhetoric it was more rhetoric than not. Um, You know, if you ask me four or five months ago, it was definitely more rhetoric than not. But as the Ukrainians achieve success, it could become less rhetoric and more fact. So early in the in earlier in the war, there were definitely uh, pronouncements from Zelensky and, and Kuleba, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, that suggested that the final status of Crimea did not have to be settled immediately in the context of, uh, combat operations. There was a, you know, kind of, there was a, an opportunity to delink Crimea, let mm-hmm. that play out in, uh, you know, a political dynamic, kind of the, uh, uh, a Minsk three except right. in favor of Russia. Since um, the other two were so successful. Yeah. But, uh, a Minsk three that, you know, imagine, conceive of it as something that really seeks to, uh, significantly, uh, constrain Russia's uh, abilities in the South, at least temporarily um, demilitarize or reduce force structure in Crimea, and uh, that also Russia is compelled to conduct a kind of a referendum source that that would have been uh, you know a viable probably solution or acceptable solution for the Ukrainians. I think if we have a particularly successful campaign uh, cycle, a counter a uh, successful counteroffensive, we would pretend, we would see something different. We would probably see a hardening of the rhetoric. Less openness, less kind of uh, uh, thought given to negotiating and allowing Russia to preserve control of over Crimea because Crimea is, you know, is a thorn in in uh, Ukraine's vulnerable underbelly. So I think that the longer this war goes, the more calcified the positions are, and potentially the more dangerous because, uh, you know. I'm probably I've I've been pretty good about predicting outcomes uh, in this war and, and Russian actions, but you know we don't need to risk the 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 uh, breaking of the nuclear taboo. And if we could avoid that by um, allowing the the Ukrainians to be open minded about this the status of Crimea, I think that's not a bad thing for us, the U.S. or them. I mean, some have argued that the continued Russian
1: occupation of Crimea, even if Ukraine is successful elsewhere on mainland Ukraine, that continues to present a security challenge for Ukraine. That's the counter argument to what you're what you're saying now. Uh, uh, do, do you do you think do you not do
0: you do you just not agree that that is such a security challenge that you have to address it? I think it is a major security challenge. But this is, um, you know, there are trade-offs and uh, in the, in the negotiation, in negotiating phase of the war, you know, whether you expend thousands, many thousands potentially uh, of people in ch- attempting to liberate Crimea uh, or do you, you accept a scenario in which the Russians are forced within a, you know, five, ten year time horizon to conduct a referendum, including the people that were forced out of Crimea since 2014, as well as demilitarizing uh, I think that that's a, you know, a trade off that the, should be very, very carefully considered. Of course, in the optimal scenario, the Russians are not in Crimea, not just because of the, the fact that it's a vulnerability for uh, for Ukraine, as long as Russia is there, but also the fact that it's a kind of a force projection platform for the Russian Federation uh, towards right. NATO. So there's a bunch of different reasons why optimally it would be good to, to liberate it. But, you know, the U.S. hasn't shown the willingness to provide the Ukrainians. The resources required to liberate Crimea. I mean, we're talking about we, uh, long-range um, uh, missiles that are required to uh, hit the furthest targets on the peninsula to destroy the Kerch Bridge uh, in su- sufficient quantities. Uh, we're talking about, you know, in addition to the armor capability that's provided, uh, drones and potentially planes. The U.S. is not kind of really arming the Ukrainians to conduct this kind of offensive. Uh, um, Operation against Crimea. So I think in this kind of trade-off scenario, uh, you you might need to think about less than the maximal. Mm-hmm. You raised nukes several times, Alex,
1: and I was wondering your take on. I have my take on it. My, your take on the announcement that that Russia is going to deploy tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus is this just a psyop to get the West freaked out about the nuclear
0: card again? It is a psyop, but it's um, it's it's. It's it's actually a, a kind of a bit of a nothing burger. Uh, mm-hmm. There's you know consistent reviews and analysis that the Russians have um, nuclear capabilities. They ov- obviously have nuclear capabilities in Kaliningrad, which is even further mm-hmm. west, right? Right. Um, in in a in a way that complicates the geometry of defending against kind of uh, any Russian uh, ability to employ nuclear weapons uh, from from the exclave. Belarus, Belarus really doesn't offer anything substantially new. Uh, I think what's what's interesting about it is uh, the the U.S. put a huge amount of effort into denuclearizing Belarus, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan in the '90s. Uh, Ukraine, you know, gave up its nuclear capability, uh, its highly enriched uranium. Um, Belarus did not. Frankly, they gave up their weapons, but they still have stockpiles of highly enriched uranium. And um, I don't think it amounts to anything. It doesn't really change the the geometry that much. It doesn't complicate the the situation. Um, It is mainly a way to intimidate, uh, provoke the West, that's that's all it is
1: yeah no that's 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 exactly how i viewed it there
0: are those as you know in, in in
1: western capitals that are nervous about this conflict escalating and metastasizing i agree with you i think that's unlikely uh to to to, to escalate to 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 the nuclear level it's never the chance is never zero but it's pretty okay. damn low and i just saw this as just trying to scare the west and just by bringing the nuclear issue up again putin seems to talk about nukes as a way of basically just trying to scare the West. And It sounds like, it sounds like you, you, you viewed it that way as well, but I just want, I wanted to touch on that. And I know um, we, we, since, since Xi Jinping was, was, was just in Moscow, I know you wrote your, your doctoral dissertation on, on, on Sino-Russian relations. Uh, how do you view the Sino-Russian relationship right now? Where is China in this?
0: China is in, is in a difficult situation. Uh, I think from, from my standpoint... It seems clear that China it was not happy about the, the war. I think um, Putin over-promised and under-delivered on a war that was only la- supposed to last days. And you know, assuring, reassuring Xi that there would be no cost, no economic impacts. In fact, that hasn't been the case. I think China has been a net loser from the instability. It probably benefited from the fact that they could extract you know, absurdly low uh, commodities prices from the Russians that, that have no choice. But it's probably a net loser in terms of, um, you know, the instability in the system, trade. I think there's something to be said about um, the ideological struggle between authoritarianism and democracy is kind of non-democratic capitalism. Uh, our Chinese non-democratic capitalist model, you know, kind of has lost its luster. Authoritarian regimes look more brittle. So again, a net loser. And certainly China is not interested in, in a significant escalation. I think there are plenty of warnings to the to their, um, Russians about the nuclear threshold. Uh, I think right. they, the Chinese also were not happy about this announcement of um, you know on the heels of Xi's visit that Russia would be moving nukes into Belarus. Of course, they're under Russian control. The Belarusians won, are not going to get anywhere near them, but they'll be on Belarusian territory, which means that they avance, advance, you know, several hundred uh, kilometers uh west but n- not that much of an issue what concerns me a little bit about um you know this the way that the chinese are operating is um i think they're largely deterred i like to think of it as a dollar spent uh in towards ukraine has had a you know 50 times multiple in terms of deterrence of russia you know russian Conventional forces are, are not going to be a factor for the next five or 10 years. Uh, NATO resources, um, U.S. resources to uh, kind of enable operational plans to defend NATO. We, we, there could be an economy of force. And the Department of Defense has, been, has recognized this and, and kind of made a hard pivot in this last budget towards China. If, in fact, that's the case... Um, and thus far, a dollar for Ukraine has also you know, had a 10 times return on deterring China. China has to reimagine whether it could really be successful in a Taiwan scenario. Does it want to bear the cost of sanctions? Does it want to be isolated? Eventually, you know, a year, if this war lasts another year or two, and Russia looks like it's getting swept off the board, and Russia has thus far, you know, been pirating resources, defense, kind of a finite no- number of defense and security dollars, They've been going towards Russia and China, and Russia, and China becomes the focus. Does China kind of reevaluate its support to Russia? Does it then choose to maybe support Russia in a way that keeps Russia in play and forces the U.S. to continue to make investments in two different directions? And I think that's, that could ultimately be a, a tipping point for uh, Chinese involvement in this war. But I think that's still a ways away. You know, I don't see any indications of a Chinese appetite for this but in a, a sharpening you know more difficult security scenario and you know Russia being swept off the board that could be a, you know that could be, change their calculus. Yeah, I've heard the one thing
1: the Chinese do not want to happen is for Russia to suffer a defeat here. And if it begins to look like they're going to suffer a defeat, then China's going to come in and assist Russia uh, to a greater degree than they are assisting them now. Um, to begin assisting them with, with with weapons. Do you see that scenario?
0: So I would say in the short term, let's say for the rest of this year, I think not. I think. Um, I think that if the Chinese uh, both see little opportunity for you know a cooperative relationship with the West, recognizing that our relationship with China is going to be a mix of a high degree of competition, but also cooperation in certain areas, certainly economic cooperation. If the Chinese see little prospect of cooperation, and they see the fact that Russia's being swept off the board, and they see that those resources are being oriented on China, they come in. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's a, it's not a, a direct function of the fact that the Russians are, 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 are gonna be defeated. The Russians are going to be defeated. It's kind of, you know, almost a matter of time. The only way that, the only two things that could change this dynamic fundamentally is one, if China chooses to go in, and then there's kind of this fundamental alignment of russia and china as leaders of the authoritarian world uh, in a you know in a struggle with democracy and two is uh if the west breaks support for ukraine right. and that's a year you know down the more than a year down the road a year and a half down the road if we happen to have a republican administration we're in danger of that i think that in general there's bipartisan support so i think if this war lasts you know well beyond this point another year and a half beyond this point um, I see you know, potentially risks of spillover. I see risks of Chinese involvement. I see risks of um, a tipping point, some point of uh, beat, where the Russians mobilize more forces. We're talking about another campaign cycle, a third campaign cycle or a right. fourth campaign cycle. And uh, I think that's when it becomes a little bit more dangerous that the Russians could maybe pull – victory out of the jaws of defeat but Mm -hmm. there's little there's little prospects for the russians unless all those things kind of a lie at this point a line that they could turn the corner yeah no that does
1: appear to be putin's only play right now is to drag this out and hope the political dynamic in the west uh changes um not just in the u.s in 2024 but but in 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 europe as, as as well um Uh, This I guess, is a good way to segue into the second half. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and take a closer look at Western assistance to Ukraine, what the United States and and the allies are doing right and where the West could be doing better. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas-Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location somewhere in southern, sunny Southern Florida is retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He's a 21-year veteran of the United States Armed Forces who has served as director for European Affairs at, for the U.S. National Security Council from 2018 to 2020. These days, Alexander is the director of the Institute for Informed American Leadership at the Vet Voice Foundation. Alexander is also the author of the must-read book "Here, Right Matters: An American Story." I'd also like to remind you you can subscribe to Power Political Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast.
0: Ми готуємо наші наступні кроки, наші активні дії, ми готуємо наближення нашої перемоги. У чому сила України? Якщо наміри твої добрі, весь світ буде на твоєму боці, тобі допомагатиме so in remarks
1: last week, after a meeting of the Multinational Ukraine Defense Contact Group, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin stressed the urgency of getting defense assistance to Ukraine in a faster and more efficient manner, saying, quote, Ukraine doesn't have time to waste. We have to deliver swiftly and fully on our promised commitments. That includes delivering our armor, our armored capabilities to the battlefield and ensuring that Ukrainian soldiers get the training, spare parts and maintenance support that they need to use these weapons as soon as possible. In a recent interview with Japanese media, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky projected similar urgency, saying Ukraine's spring offensive could not start without additional armaments, adding, quote, "We are waiting for ammunition to arrive from our partners." And when asked about what the expected counter about the expect the expected counteroffensive, Zelensky said we can't start yet. We can't send our brave soldiers to the front line without tanks, artillery, and long-range rockets. If you have the political will, you can find a way to help us. We are at war and can't wait. Um, and I read those out all in kind of detail, Alex, because the thing about these statements from the U.S. Uh, the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, is they pretty much reflect things you have been saying for months now. Um for for months now, in a recent interview with Politico, you argued, among other things, that the United States should facilitate the sending of US defense contractors into Ukraine to improve the system of the maintenance of Western arms. Could you expand on that for our listeners? And I wanted to kind of get into a discussion of what other issues you see in the Western defense assistance to Ukraine and how we can do better. Yeah,
0: so I think first from a top line perspective, It should be clear that the rhetoric uh, communicates urgency, but the actions do not. Uh, The actions are uh, actions that still are artificial red lines along systems that can be provided. Um, You know, planes are off the menu. Advanced drones are off the menu. Long range missiles are off the menu. Uh, That's that's a pretty absurd premise. Uh, I think, you know, you'll get the straw man argument that. We need these capabilities in our own arsenal. They're kind of limited. Uh, We need those to conduct kind of contingency plans. You know, if we have a third world war, we need those in arsenal. But they fail to recognize that one of our biggest adversaries, our biggest challengers, Russia, is being swept off the map. So if we need, you know, 100 widgets to fight them, 100 kind of, you know, uh, uh, long-range rockets or long-range missiles – they're not there. We don't need those hundred rockets or hundred uh, missiles. We could use them. We could use a, We could afford to take a little bit of risk. So that that argument doesn't carry a lot of weight with me. But that's one of the reasons why you know you'll hear we we can't provide these low density systems. In some cases, they're actually not that low density. The other thing is uh, there is still, even though there's a high degree of comfort with the Ukrainians or with the Russians, no longer kind of. With this notion that uh, any new system that we provide will some, somehow be the tipping point for a conflict with NATO, they'll still use that as an excuse to a certain extent. They'll be like, "Okay, we're, we're providing more tanks because tanks are not going to be the trigger for World War III, but we can't do that with airplanes for some reason." You know, it just it doesn't. It, There's right. a logical, pretty significant logic gap uh, in the in the way these arguments are framed. And then I think um, I think fundamentally this goes back to some of my doctoral work. Uh, about why the U.S. tends to be risk averse, they're frankly concerned about uh, Ukraine winning too much and Russia losing too badly, and the kind of brittleness that would uh, um, in the Russian system that could cause Russia to to fracture. It's a um, misconception that Russia is that that much on the brink of uh, of collapse, uh, but it's the same kind of thinking that drove um, you know previous administrations like George H.W. Bush. Uh, around the collapse of the Soviet Union yes. and the kinds of emphasis the U.S. put behind preserving the center, preserving Kremlin, preserving the kind of our you know uh, our principal interlocutors, these are the, the the reasons that we don't we we haven't been fulsome in our support, our rhetoric not matching our actions. In terms of the systems that are required, um, you know, fundamentally, we are we're getting closer to the the. Um, the capabilities but not anywhere near the density that's required um 30 tanks 31 uh, m1 tanks you know six uh, eight to ten months from now is not going to cut it for this this offensive um counter-offensive cycle um not enough bradley's strikers ammunition uh in, in insufficient quantities and then the th- things i've been repeating you know kind of over and over um to the White House from almost – from the days before this war started uh, uh, all the way through, that you need to be thoughtful about the systems that you provide them. Uh, If we had made these courageous decisions earlier, Russia may have never gotten its footing, may have never developed a theory for victory. Instead, we gave them breathing room, and uh, we're we're just drawing out a war that is particularly dangerous to U.S. national security, the rules-based international order.
1: Now you 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 sp- your your theory of the of the US caution on this and we've seen this pattern with every single system. Um, we saw it with the Javelins. We saw it with the HIMARS. We saw it, we saw it with the Patriots. The US says no and then, and then and then no turns into yes weeks later or months later on every system. I suspect we're going to see it on the F16s <laughs> as well and as well as the as the Attackums. But I've also heard that there's a lot of bureauc- there's a lot of kind of bureaucratic infighting over this in the, in, inside the administration, and there are factions in the administration that favor a more cautious approach, um, and factions in the administration that favor a more hawkish approach. Um, it's generally been couched as a struggle between the National Security Council and the State Department, um, with the State Department being the more hawkish, um, together with the Department of Defense. Um, is this, does this there's stand two. with what you've been
0: hearing? Uh, That's very true. I I actually I'd say the State Department is the most forward leaning. Uh, I mean, I think uh, Secretary Blinken has been pretty much on point here. I think the Department of Defense, frankly, has been my home uh, uh, institution has been less than thoughtful, providing kind of, you know, window dressing for the uh, National Security Council's resistance to taking more bold, courageous action uh with these kinds of arguments well that we need to preserve these capabilities we can't can't give away all our attackums. give away all our attackums. give away you know everything that we need in order to help the ukrainians deliver decisive uh victories because again it has a direct impact on our deterrence of russia and uh a drafting impact on china also significant ones far far more important we could spend 40 billion dollars on three additional aircraft carriers those things are pretty expensive. That wouldn't get us anywhere near the deterrence value of helping Ukraine defeat Russia, and uh, you know the fact that we could ultimately then pivot more directly to a uh, uh, the possibility of a confrontation with China. That's much much more uh, uh, worthwhile in, in investment in the short term. Um, the White House, you know, I I am I. Engage with the White House every couple of weeks uh, or so. And um, from the very beginning, I assured them that w- they would be making decisions that they thought they would never make, that they would be crossing their their kind of artificial thresholds. As a matter of fact, it's possible that, you know, when when the topic of the M1A burns came up um, in one of these discussions, I didn't give them a pat on the back like they were looking for, but told them that I was increasingly comfortable that they would actually finally provide uh f uh F sixteens and, and drones eventually. Uh, you know, just kind of like a sharp elbow. Um, because, you know, it needs to be pointed out that every time they say that, you know, they they can't do this, it's a bridge too far, they end up getting there. Usually it's extremely reactive. It's the result of a an atrocity that the Russians commit. Uh it's a result of a a, a new kind of escalation. Um and it's not very thoughtful. The only thing I could think of really Is that the administration, and I think President Biden actually tends to be pretty thoughtful on this topic, too. The only thing I can think of is that it is a staff that is, you know, extremely loyal to to the president and, um, you know, provides kind of middle of the road recommendations on actions, something that, you know, won't won't put the president in particular peril um, and laser focused on short term risks. Without a consideration or fear of how these short-term decisions could stack up in a much, much more you know difficult manner for the U.S., it is a deeply risk-averse uh, National Security Council. Um, that's troubling. Yeah, no,
1: and as I've watched the debate of this administration evolve over the course of the administration, and if you you remember early on, Alex, the debate was was between the, between state and the NSC early on. Was that the NSC and the National Security Advisor in particular were looking to quote unquote park the Russia problem, right? To have a stable, predictable relationship with Russia, so all the all the energy could be focused on China. Uh, that, of course, went out the window um, on um, in February of 2022. But now. These 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 groups have, the, the 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 sides in this argument haven't changed. Just the nature of their argument has changed. The more cautious ones on Russia from the National Security Council are now kind of uh, putting forth this fear of escalation and fear that the conflict will metastasize and fears that it will go nu- nuclear. While the, the the State Department has continued its uh, its hawkish stance. Do you do you see it this way? You're in, you're in a much closer contact with the White House than I am.
0: Uh, I think that's generally true. Um, I think that these uh, a lot of times the administration the the National Security Council specifically looks to add some logic to their position that's frankly deeply illogical, uh, especially if you take a look at the the way uh, the u s has conducted support for Ukraine over the past 14 months. We've clearly you know escalated our level of support. Uh, we've now dispensed largely uh, with these kind of misplaced fears of escalation, but they'll still kind of hang uh, a, uh, this, you know, very very lethargic approach on on these um, on these I don't know um, on these kind of arguments. And I wonder mm-hmm. if at this point the positions have just largely calcified and that the uh it would be too embarrassing to shift off of some of these things and that's really Mm -hmm. what's your base kind of political calculations that are driving this uh you know they said no planes they they you know they don't want to turn uh reverse course and then you know say why didn't we provide then take the heat for not providing it earlier uh i think this is the same this is exactly the same kind of case that i've experienced with regards to this logistics question that you you raised uh that the administration refuses to provide a logistical footprint inside ukraine and instead choosing to um build a new platform in poland to Mm -hmm. a front line that's 800 or a thousand kilometers away um saying that it's sufficient to, to support from way back there, instead of allowing, like we have done in other conflicts, uh, a relatively modest, because of Ukraine's industrial base, um, footprint to exist in, in Ukraine and, and keep this enormous amount of Western donated equipment in, in good working order, um, just from normal kind of uh, fail rates from usage or battle damage. And it's, it's a really kind of an inefficient system. But that's just another example of the fact that the, the administration is deeply reluctant to kind of move on this issue. Yeah, I wanted to dig
1: to kind of dive into that a bit, Alex. And what you are proposing here is to actually have US defense contractors on the ground in closer to the front lines in ukraine in order to more if, if i understood you correctly to more efficiently and rapidly maintain and repair uh the 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 armaments that we've been we've been giving to ukraine is that is that is that what you was is
0: that a fair That's assessment right. of what you're proposing it is but um we have to remember that ukraine is the largest country in europe it's um it's about a thousand kilometers from the furthest point to, to uh, the Polish border to, to our logistics bases there. And it makes zero sense to um, backhaul kind of the fairly significantly damaged amount of gear back to Poland, have all the supply parts located in Poland, push, them, push a limited amount of supply parts forward. My concept is to, um, in this vast country, position logistics about 12 12 hours away from the front lines you know still hundreds of kilometers away but in in um industrial footprints that could manage a large number of supply parts have them on hand as things break down have the technicians in in the dozens not in the thousands like we had in iraq and afghanistan but really in the dozens in the scores uh, available to fix things and train the ukrainians to maintain them train the operators to to optimize the employment of capabilities, seems like a really kind of modest uh, uh, investment, especially when you recognize that we've provided hundreds and hundreds of pieces of equipment. Hundreds of pieces of equipment are not working in working order, and it's far more efficient use of capital to repair things that are broken than just to keep buying new things and replace them.
1: And have you guys have you gotten a receptive audience on this? How 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 is this received when you when you kind of propose this to policymakers? Because um, it sounds it makes sense to me. I mean, I, I could see the 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 uh, the nervousness about putting American boots on the ground, even though they would be civilian boots um, and they would be active duty military boots. But what 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 kind of reception do you get on this?
0: So so it could be American or it could be third country nationals. There's I mean, they they're, this is NATO equipment, so it could be other countries that have shown a willingness and an appetite uh you know including like let's say for instance the, the turks have been uh, leaning forward in supporting ukraine uh the the there's a recognition that the, there's an urgency to supply logistics and support to ukraine uh but they the the administration will argue that they're doing fine with regards to what what they call telemaintenance. you know basically you call somebody up you show them what you're working on and they talk you through a repair of course uh-huh account for the fact that there are weapons in place, there's a whole bunch of different I mean, um, parts need to be in place in order to kind of immediately fix things instead of requesting parts for for um, that then have to transit across the border. Um, but I think at the same time, there was a recognition that, you know, they were if they were getting by just getting by before the the tanks and the Bradleys and the strikers came in, that they were going to have a heck of a hard time maintaining these fleets. Uh, going forward. So I think there was a rec- there was kind of even in their wishful thinking, there was a recognition that um, they would have to do more in the future based on the volume that's being added.
1: So this is something that you could see happening going
0: forward. Then. Uh, it's going to happen. It's going happen. Happen. Good, to good ha- happen. And uh, uh, I mean, it's going to happen, you know, in part by dragging the the, uh, the administration to do it. Um, and a uh, recognition of the fact that you can do this without, uh, without really sustaining casualties. There are plenty of different force protection measures you can do. <laughs> Everything from you know, distributed operations, uh, or modest footprints, um, uh, counter UAS um, systems uh, at, at the locations, and really kind of rigid military discipline uh, with regards to warning of uh, imminent attack. That's really how you protect your personnel. Ukrainians have been really good about uh, warning their their people about um, incoming cruise missiles and and drones. Uh, not everybody heeds those warnings, but you basically would conduct an enterprise that would heed these warnings and it would be uh, uh, with personnel taking shelter immediately. So I think this is something that's going to happen eventually. I think that to me, uh, this I I don't see a lot of signs that this administration is prepared to shift off of a quite reactive. Policy. I think the provision of tanks and Bradleys and Strikers um, in order to enable a counteroffensive maybe is 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 a a shift in degrees from uh, previous precedents. They were trying to they looked a little bit forward to figure out how to provide the Ukrainians with enough capability to conduct a successful counteroffensive. But even there. Continued shortcuts in, in providing the systems that we need, would need to be integrated for a truly kind of successful um, counteroffensive.
1: Now, something you've also been uh, outspoken about is the, the speed or lack thereof of the deliveries of these weapon systems to Ukraine. Could you speak to that a bit? Because this is something I don't think a lot of people know or realize. People see the top line number. We've given 40 billion in aid, and they think that's that all, all that stuff's already there. But it's 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 not getting there as fast as it really needs
0: to, is it? That's true. I think the fact is that there's always uh, an announcement that then um, has to be operationalized. You're you're talking about a scenario where you know we we promise to deliver X amount of gear, and then it needs to be uh, the Ukrainians need to be tri- uh, trained on it. It needs to be shipped over. Um, you know, it might come with some logistics package, usually not, uh, and that that takes a long period of time. The worst, one of the worst examples is, are these uh, M1 Abrams, instead of taking something out of like inventory uh, that doesn't have any of the, you know, particularly classified um, armor um, system, plate armor that we're trying to protect and giving it to the Ukrainians. We're basically, we initially promised something off the production line that was going to be, you know, 18 months to delivery ultimately they, the, the administration rethought that terrible terrible idea and switched to something that was in the inventory but they're still talking about eight to ten months to get uh, to get something delivered I think that's um, particularly egregious example and uh, we I think a good example of how we we should be thinking or what should train us retrain us to think a little bit more critically about these timelines is patriots we thought that the ukrainians were, were going to be slow learners on Patriots instead so <laughs> Indicates that the, the Ukrainians have been superb in in kind of mastering the capabilities. Uh, I think the 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 pivot that we're looking for here, that a lot of you know ex policymakers, folks that understand the pro, this the challenges, understand this war, are thinking, is that the the U.S. should pivot to uh, a policy of enabling lend-lease uh, and enabling this mindset that if the Ukrainians ask for something, we say yes. And then figure out how to get get it there expeditiously, instead of saying no, or we need to take a look at that, or we we need to figure out how to train it. I was having uh, this conversation um, with some other kind of policymakers, and I looked at the lend-lease numbers. We provided 16,000 planes to the Soviet Union and 6,000 tanks and tank destroyers. The, um, it seems like, you know, the argument, the counter-argument was, well, this is a different time, much more simple piece of equipment. But we were providing them to a Soviet military that was basically you know peasant farmers fundamentally right. uh, for them, these were like miracle machines or something like that uh you know pretty pretty advanced technology. The Ukrainians are pretty darn advanced and they have to master an advanced piece of equipment, but it 's still so quite analogous. We should just be giving the Ukrainians uh what they need. The legislation's in
1: place for lendlease so the, i mean in, in my my understanding is that the president doesn't even need to get any congressional approval he pretty much has the, the the unilateral right now to basically quote unquote lend Ukraine whatever he wants in terms of military hardware is
0: that correct that's that's right he had with that legislation it was passed back in um, about this time last year actually in, yep. in uh, spring of last year and I was I was um, you know put I was a, a strong supporter of that legislation moving forward, but it just really hasn't been operationalized. it was kind of again uh it answered the, the the calls from critics but didn't get didn't materialize i did i have been you know fairly critical i guess of this administration not doing enough but there are areas where the administration deserves a huge amount of credit first of all there's no comparison to you know the other side of the political spectrum which was instead of um you know supporting a democracy cheerleading an authoritarian authoritarian regime and in fact probably offering you know, kind of um, what amounts to a path to victory to Putin uh, in the belief that th- this would be a low cost war, not just low cost with regards to the battlefield, but low cost with regards to blowback from the democratic world. That's what the, the Republican, the far right Republicans were pr- pretty much offering. Uh, and it, this administration, especially folks like Tony Blinken put an enormous amount of effort into uniting and consolidating the, the democratic world in opposition to to uh, Russian uh, aggression, the kinds of things that need to happen now are this fundamental shift that Russia is now no longer. You know, it's it's not it's decided itself to exclude itself from the rules based international system designed at the end of World War II. You know, the UN uh, was established to avoid prevent uh, large states from using military means to attack small states. That was the kind of the bargain that was struck even with the Soviet Union. Uh, I think we need to start thinking a lot more creatively. Uh, there are interesting analyses being provided about the fact that the Russian Federation is not an inheritor state to the Soviet Union, shouldn't be a member of the Security Council. Uh, that, you know, on a much more kind of tactical level, Russia shouldn't be seated as the president of the Security Council. Um, that would be the exact wrong message. I think the administration is thinking about the fact that, well, do we want to set the precedent where a uh, permanent member of, of the Council could veto? Uh, another permanent members, um, you know, uh, assuming the presidency, that's less important than the fact that you're seating, frankly, uh, a a criminal regime, a war criminal. Um, I think that's a much, much more kind of disastrous turn for uh, a rules based international. And we just need to be a lot more kind of thoughtful that we've a year into this war. We're in a much, much more difficult place, and this should be a permanent pivot. Uh, recognizing that until Russia fundamentally changes it's it's outside the system and needs to be uh, treated as such
1: no I would agree with that. and I've been reading a lot lately about the, how the the argument that Russia doesn't have the right to the Soviet seat on 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 the Security Council Alex we're bumping up against the end I'm very mindful of the time is there anything else you would like
0: to add before we wrap it up for this week just a couple couple thoughts uh, I, I just finished up my doctor work and I I was struck by the consistency in the fact that we've, the U.S. as a as a rule continues to to focus on the short term, buy down short term risk without the recognition of how short buying down that short term risk could actually stack up detrimentally to U.S. long term interests. You know, threaten the kind of rules based international system. Uh, I was also struck by the this notion that. Um, We tend to be quite transactional, uh, and we do this because there's a cult of realpolitik that says we need to, you know, when we engage with 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 foreign states, that we do so to, uh, you know, the benefit of the United States, instead of a much more pluralistic notion that, you know, maybe we don't get maximum benefit, but the system benefits as a whole. And I think that we would benefit enormously from this simple notion that our values are central to our interests and that we should be mindful of our values when you make decisions. Uh, I think that's a consistency that's been lacking for for quite a long time in in the US US, uh, foreign policy decision-making. All right. Well, thanks. And with that, on that note, and I, uh, from
1: your lips to God's ears, I will wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Virtual podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location somewhere in sunny Southern Florida has been retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinman. He is a 21-year veteran of the U.S. Armed Forces who served as Director for European Affairs for the U.S. National Security Council from 2018 to 2020. These days, Alexander is the Director of the Institute for Informed American Leadership at the Vet Voice Foundation. Alexander, of course, is also the author of the must-read a book *Here, Right Matters, an American Story. Alexander, thank you for an enlightening discussion and for making us all a whole lot smarter I hope you'll come back on the podcast soon. Thanks, Brian. Looking forward to it. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in, in, in Arlington, Texas. Lance League is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to power Talk Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the PowerVertical vertical blog and access all power vertical products at powervertical.org. and you can follow us on the twitter at power vertical join us again next week and until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team